Christmas time on this podcast. That's right, it's November 1st, everybody. You know what that means. Halloween's done, and it's Christmas time for two months. And this is The Pick with Sean Lemmy, John Otney, and Colin Westman. And guys, I gotta admit, that was a ruse. I don't actually think we should be celebrating Christmas this this early in the year. I also don't know how I feel about you... (laughs) Acting as if we're in the future. Well, what? Because we're recording this a few days before three, we release three it? Three days in the future. What if something, like, horrific happens the next three days? And people are like, why aren't these guys addressing this, <laughs> this, this horrible thing that happened? Not that we ever talk about current events, but, you know. Colin, that is an astonishingly pessimistic way to look at the world. Well... It's just like, you gotta live in the moment, not the future. I think, well, okay, there's the point that I agree with you with, because obviously you're right. We're, we're, like, Halloween hasn't even happened for us yet. It has happened for the listener, and, mm-hmm. and we're already looking forward till Christmas, which means we're skipping over Thanksgiving, which is such a wonderful season. It's the holiday everyone hates because you have to spend it with your actual family and not your chosen family. Um, but it's also the food holiday, so that's good. Unless you're the friends from the TV show <laughs> friends. The friends from the TV show friends. They always hang out on Thanksgiving and they're their chosen family. Did any I guess like Cheers did that too. Yeah, there's a good Cheers Thanksgiving episode. Maybe my favorite Cheers episode. Um, but we're uh we're gonna we're gonna keep Thanksgiving in our hearts this November first by uh by talking about at least one uh, family-centric movie uh, with Parasite. That's but that's our big pick this week. Before we get to that, we have um, some little picks to go through, and I think tradition states that I go first or last. I don't remember actually. I'll go first. I think you go first because we loop it around to the to the big pick, which is your also pick. mine. I have a lot of yeah. pick power this yep. week. Um, my little pick this week is Vagabond, the second album from Vagabond. Uh, if you guys remember, she was uh, one of my favorite. Uh, she put out one of my favorite albums a couple years ago. Um, I think 2017 was when Infinite Worlds came out, a uh, an indie rock album from this uh, multi instrumentalist, self taught. Uh, New York-based musician who calls herself Vagabond. I believe her name is Letitia Tamko, but uh, my pronunciation might be wrong. Uh, and that first album was a really fun sort of intimate indie rock album. Um, and the second one she's put out, uh, she's, she said that she actively didn't want to be uh, categorized as, as an indie rocker. Uh, she doesn't want to be uh, like play a victim, uh, and so she's she's put out this new album that's kind of um, moving her in a new artistic direction and also a very uh, empowering lyrically uh, called Vagabond. So it's a self self titled 
uh, album. And I'm, I'll, I'll say it's it's like the word vagabond without the D, if you're confused why I say it like that. Uh, I don't think it's an actual word. I think it's just a made-up word. Um, but it's uh, this new album is, you know, it's more synthy, less, much less uh, guitar-centric than, um, than the first one. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we talk about when we watch MTV Live how everything's like low-key and just super chill now and i feel like she's she's sort of tapping into that vibe uh there's there's not the same sort of desperation that her her first album had um in fact there's one song water me down that's i don't think the single but it's the one that feels like should be the lead single that i could definitely imagine being on one of those uh mtv live that montage show that we watch sometimes (laughs) that keeps us hip you act like the listener knows what we're talking about. What's that show called? It's like Awesome Mix Live or something. Like that. Yeah. Let's not dwell on this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on out there. Uh, but but I think Vagabond is uh, an artist I'm really excited about. Uh, so now she has two albums that are good. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'd probably still pick the first album. But I've been listening to that a lot for like more than two years now. So... It's not, it's not really fair. This new album came out like <laughs> a week ago, two weeks ago, I think last week. That sounds right. I, oh. uh, I, I liked her first album um, a lot. I don't know. This one's not jumping out to me as much, which we'll see. I've only listened to it a couple of times, but it's like I usually like it for the most part when, when indie <laughs> guitar-based acts kind of go the synth pop route like it usually works out but uh i don't know i'm still skeptical about this one but we'll see i like that for herself a lot so i'm just i'm so excited to see where she goes because um i think i said she's like self-taught like she's Mm -hmm. she's like like her first guitar she just like bought at costco and taught herself to play and yet she plays like most of the instruments on most of these songs yeah. So I think it's super cool that she's just like figuring this out and doing her own thing, and I'm mm-hmm. excited to see what she comes up with next. Hmm. Epic awesome music was the name of that Epic MTV. Awesome music. So Colin was kind of close. He's, you said awesome music, right? Those are two of the words. <laughs> yeah, sure. Two out of three eight. Pack. I had to go to the MTV Live programming website to find this information. <laughs> they showed like twenty episodes of ridiculousness today. Oh man. Why does anyone want to watch that much ridiculousness? Okay, I think John. I'll go next. next. Okay. So, oh, before I do my little pick, I'd like to offer a a correction from last episode. Oh, no. I called uh, Eureka's Castle Allegra's Castle. Uh, So I'd like to just have that correction on the record. I got it confused with the Nickelodeon show um, Allegra's Window. You know, I don't want the Eureka's Castle slash Allegro's Window fans coming after us. So you're saying you could have done a John's Goofs for our own <laughs> for podcast. For our own podcast. I said Allegra's Castle, and I just went with it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like everyone deserves an apology. You guys remember Allegra's Window? Not only do I not remember either of these things, I don't remember you talking about them last week. Because R.L. Stein was the head writer on Eureka's Castle. It was a fantasy-themed puppet show. Allegra was more like <laughs> real-world problems with puppets. With puppets? And there's a cat that loved to eat rutabagas. 
Mm. Was the cat called Rutabaga? I don't know. He's blue. That's not my little pick. Uh, I have to revisit that. I'm not sure how good it is. Uh, but I've been pretty knee-deep in Halloween, so I'm going to recommend the one thing I've been into lately that's not Halloween-related. I've been listening to a new podcast, Office Ladies. It's a uh, podcast about The Office from Jenna Fisher and uh, Angela Kinsey. And um, basically how it works is they're going to go through every single episode of The Office, kind of review it, and then give you behind the scenes. And I've been rewatching The Office for like the third time, I think. It's like a yearly Good tradition surprise. now. We're in season six. <laughs> Uh, and I wasn't sure about this podcast because I, I turn it on and it's very bubbly. It's very high energy. You know, I'm used to more of like slacker energy, like Mark Marin level energy. And he really only gets super enthusiastic when he's mad about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do like it because they have so much insight uh, into the show. They're talking about what it was like being cast and like, was this joke improvised? Was this joke not improvised? One thing that I thought was interesting they were talking about the Diversity Day episode, and apparently one of the uh, writer's assistants came up with the idea for that episode because he was in a college class where they actually did put note cards on their heads with races. Holy shit. Like, that shit. really that happened. really happened? <laughs> so they made it into an episode. Good God. So it's, it's fun to hear about you know, the stories behind episodes, and they always fact-check and seek out people related to the show. Like, for the Diversity Day episode, it's written by BJ Novak, so they like wrote to him and got some of his insight on it. Mm. And yeah, if you're if you're a big fan of the show, it's just like a treasure trove of, of more fun facts. So it's cool. So to me, the thing about this podcast that uh, the, that I'm trepidatious about is that Angelic and Pam on mm-hmm. the show were maybe two of the characters that hated each other the most. Yes. They did not have anything in common. So what is the dynamic like between those actors? They're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they hung out all the time on set Like they were like best buds Also they hung out with Steve Carell a lot So they have a lot of Steve Carell stories Oh, cool. Apparently Steve Carell Very like gentle, super sweet, nice, low-key guy You know, he's not one of those people that's always on Like mm. always telling jokes Like a Jack Black Like I love Jack Black, but the dude's always on <laughs> So it's, it's always kind of nice to hear that these Performers who are known for being really big and over the top Are like just just like you or me, you know, it's like very low-key, regular kind of people. Just trying to work. The only thing on the podcast is like I'm so far ahead that it's I, – I wish I could be like keep in check with it. But I'm not going to watch, an, you know, that episode every week and then for how many ever many oh, years. Oh, yeah, it's just one a week. So that's going to take forever. Uh, but, yeah, it's a good podcast, a lot of good insight, a lot of good fun facts. Uh, if you're an Office fan, you got to check it out. Um. Okay, for my little pick <laughs> – feel like I, I don't know I had a hard time thinking of anything so I'll just recommend an album that came out a few weeks ago I haven't gotten around to reviewing it on the blog but maybe I will uh, it's the new Angel Olsen album oh hey I shit you not Vagabond and Angel Olsen are touring together she's Vagabond opens for Angel Olsen right now that sounds like a good show uh, I don't know the name of the album. <laughs> I've listened to it a bunch of times. Can you remember the name of it, Sean? I can remember the name of all her other albums. Why is it such a hard album name to remember? Because she stripped it down. It's like a secret title. <laughs> oh, it's called All Mirrors. 
Yeah, just sure. looked it up on my phone. That would have taken me like an hour to think of. <laughs> I guess a weirdly generic album title. Anyways. Um, they can't all be Burn Your Fire for No Witness. It's a good one. Uh, so anyways, you were talking about how <laughs> music these days is just so like chill and laid back. And this is an album that's not really at all. It's just like such a epic like massive sounding album very like orchestral but also kind of weaving in some of the 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 more synthy sounds that she was exploring on her last album although i feel like her last album i don't know dived into a lot of different styles but this one i think the mo is definitely big like she kind of throws down the gauntlet on the the first song lark where i I don't know just when I saw the the music video that came out for that song where she's like on a mountaintop and there's like an aerial shot of her on it and I'm just like wow this is this is just like this sweeping epic sound that she's going for um but I don't know there there are a few songs that kind of strip it down a little bit like I think I heard that she like maybe recorded some of these songs or maybe even all of them in, in like stripped down versions, I guess sort of like how St. Vincent did that, I don't know, acoustic version of the, the Mass Seduction Massive. album. Yeah, they gave you the title you wanted it to be called Mass which Education. Was Mass, which is what I thought the, ori- the original album was called, but I never listened to that one. I don't know Aww. if Angel Olsen will do the same thing, we'll sh- she'll reverse, reverse release a uh, stripped down version. Which would be the reverse version, I suppose. I guess. Yeah, but uh, I uh, I'm liking it a lot. I I think I feel like I like it uh, more each time I listen to it, even though I feel a little emotionally exhausted each time I do. But uh, she's uh, she's 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 a good songwriter. Always doing interesting stuff. That's funny because I feel like I had the opposite. Or not the opposite experience. I guess I had the same experience that you had with Vagabond, where um, I really, really like My Woman. Mm-hmm. Like, that's probably on my top ten of the decade when we do those in a few weeks. Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've had a, a harder time getting into this one, I think. Mm. Maybe because... I said stripped down, but I meant orchestral, which is not the same at it's all. It's opposite. <laughs> uh, I miss the guitars and stuff, mm. but I'm getting I'm getting used to it. All right, our our similar takes on albums that we like. Who knew? So, should we get to the big pick? Yeah. So we're we're talking about Parasite, which is a brand new release. We're probably the first podcast to talk about it. This is <laughs> gonna bring in all our fans. Uh, because I couldn't like look up video essays on this one to like help me understand it. This is all it's all Sean thoughts and John and Colin. Um, but I, I figured before we got into it, we should talk about the the director and writer, uh, which is not something I know much about. But his name is Bong Joon Ho. I can tell you that much. And um. One thing I, I, I was able to read was that um, 
a lot of South Korean movies deal with class issues. It's not just a Bong Joon-ho thing. It's uh, there's there's a lot of just like general awareness of the disparity between uh, the class structure in South Korea. Um, and and hearing that that absolutely checks out with um, not just the other Bong Joon-ho movies I've seen, but like literally like every South Korean movie I've seen I think had some aspect of uh you know poor people have it bad or, or rich people are out of touch or just something to say about um wealth and class you even uh, just watched one with train to busan that has elements of that yeah train to busan totally has that. actor in common too the son in parasite was the the main baseball kid in, really that was baseball yeah. kid oh yeah. man i didn't even look that up baseball kid does not make it in train to busan there's a free <laughs> spoiler for you to have that one's on us. <laughs> um, so I wanted to know like what Bong Joon-ho's uh, background was, given that uh, he and many of these other filmmakers uh, have made movies about class. And what I saw was that he had what sounds like a fairly upper-class upbringing, um, in that he his father was a successful graphic designer. Apparently his grandmother was... Uh, a somewhat famous author in in South Korea, and uh, uh, both his siblings have kind of cool upper class jobs. His brother is like a, a literary professor, uh, and his sister became a fashion designer. Um, so I, I don't I don't get the impression that this is a family that like struggled or that he had a a, a difficult life. The only thing I saw was that originally he studied sociology when he went to university and because uh, his, his parents didn't approve of him uh, studying film and it was only later that he uh, went back to film school and then began his uh, his cinematic career it's so interesting all of this I didn't know this because almost I've seen all of his movies all seven of them every single one rich people or the government are the bad guys <laughs> it's always about poor people in the lower class so it's interesting that he's so sympathetic towards that point of view um, I don't know if he's maybe he feels a little a bit of guilt to have been so fortunate in some ways. Yeah, I don't know, but he's definitely in tune with it. I don't think he really approaches any of these movies from an upper class, like looking down perspective. I, you know, I heard one thing. I wasn't sure if it was uh, before this movie or while making this movie, Parasite. But I heard the story about him picking up there. He was shooting in like a fancy house, and he picked up a trash can. And then someone told him that trash can costs um, $2,500. And he started trembling, and it made him so disgusted that it really fueled his, like, to make this movie to think that there's people would you know, make something like that, and then people would buy something like that. Wow. So even if he has had an like, upper-class upbringing, he certainly doesn't feel like that's his world. It kind of disturbs him, it seems like. Uh, and so you've seen all his movies. Can we talk about each of them real quick? Sure. Well, I'll tell you, it's not like a great story, but I might as well bring it up. So the first time I ever heard about Bong Joon-ho, I saw, it was 2006, and I saw a commercial on TV to check out the host in, in limited release. And I had uh-huh. to check it out because it said, This Generation's Jaws. Uh-huh. I was like, wow. So it went out like, the next night pretty soon, uh, bought Sean Lennon's Friendly Fire, went to <laughs> uh, the Neptune back when it was a movie theater. Yeah. And it for me absolutely lived up to the hype of being this generation's jaws because like i kind of just went to it because it's like oh this is gonna be a fun monster movie it looked because the trailers were just like it's a silly fun monster movie and that stuff's fun but then 
has a story about this downtrodden family in mm. it and like their suffering is almost presented at times in a comedic way and it was such a unique uh way to do this kind of movie and the fact that this movie is basically about how the government can do whatever they want with little regard for common people and it just hit me so hard that i had to check out every single other bong joon ho movie um so i've seen them all so his first movie is barking dogs never bite yeah i will say i've seen most of them not all of them. yeah Barking Dogs Never Bite, which is about a guy who kidnaps people's dogs in an apartment complex because they're yappy, and that one's pretty dark. Yeah, this um, was the one I'd never even heard of. I, I just uh, all I saw about it was it was not a success. Yeah, and I haven't seen it in a long time either. But it was it was a little too like I hate seeing animals mistreated in any way. Mm-hmm. So it was a tough watch for me. This one's probably on that Does the Dog Die website. <laughs> Uh, Memories of Murder was a more conventional, just straight-up mystery thriller. And that was uh-huh. also his first collaboration with Song Kang-ho, who's yep. kind of like his go-to guy. Um, then I've The Host. Seen it. Yeah. The host. What did you think about it? I like remember it? liking it. It's not really a movie that stands out, I think. It's, like, solid, but it's I don't feel like it's as weird as some of his other movies. It, it sounds really interesting. So what I yeah. read was it's it's about like the first serial killer in South Korean history. Yeah, because that's not really a thing over there. Yeah. Uh, so the host, and then Mother, which is the film I'd say is most like this one, mm-hmm. and that it's mm-hmm. another, it's like mostly a family drama. It's not too genre heavy in any way. Uh, has a lot of a kind of like a downer ending, not quite. Um, but it just like because it goes to those dark places. I think that's why it's um, it reminds me so much of it. I, I always had the perception that this was his like most acclaimed film, Mother. Maybe I'm not sure. I know the host was like a huge commercial hit. It, I'm it not was, sure if it was. I think critically it was liked, it, but it was like the the biggest movie in yeah. South Korean history. At the it time. was their jobs basically. Yeah. So, yeah. And then Snowpiercer was his English language debut, and I think out of all the South Korean directors who've tried to make that transition, this is probably been the most successful. And it's just like a solid sci-fi movie. They turned it into a show. Isn't it a show on TNT? <laughs> mm-hmm. I've never seen that. I don't even know who's on it. Yeah. Probably some like B-listers or C-listers. It just sounds like someone's like, hey, this is a very cheap idea for a TV show. How do you make show? a whole show that every episode's set on a big train? It's like it's like Cheers, you know? You just have the one set. <laughs> and it's funny when, and we're going to probably get into this, how all of his movies seem to be about... Um, the lower class and the downtrodden up against the upper class. And I love how this way it's really it's literally broken down into poor people on one side of the train, rich people on the other side of the train, and they have to fight their way through the train. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure some people see this as is more like, oh, this is more mainstream and commercial, but you guys saw that movie, right? Mm-hmm. And okay, so spoilers. Mm-hmm. Like, remember how like Chris Evans like killed children in it? And ate them. That wouldn't be in like most <laughs> that wouldn't be in like an American sci fi action movie. <laughs> yep. So there's the South Korean influence. Yeah, and that's something I I noticed about the host, too, is like there, or at least Bong Joon-ho, is okay with killing kids, uh, which was like really shocking back in 2006 for me when I was not expecting. Like that's, for me, that's the thing about the host is the back half of that movie does not go the way I thought it was going to go. Yeah, kid dies. (laughs) Like one of the main characters. It's crazy. Um, They're not afraid to go in those places. Uh, So yeah, Snowpiercer... Okia, which was his Netflix debut. Uh, surely you guys have seen it. It's for sitting right there on Netflix, right? No. I've, I've seen it. Okay, you've seen it. <laughs> yeah. 
I was acted so condescending. I had no idea you'd actually seen it. Yeah. That one I thought was fine. It was it was okay. For me, I kind of like the South Korean stuff in it better than the American stuff, but I do think he has a pretty good handle on that stuff. Song not, Kang-ho in it? No. I, I, I forgot to mention he is in Snowpiercer. Oh, I also forgot to mention, when I watched Snowpiercer, I had missed it in theaters. It had a small release, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. So I watched it online, some rando site, and it didn't have any subtitles. And I thought... Mm. Because um, Song Kang-ho is the only character in it that speaks, and maybe one other character speaks South Korean, everyone else speaks English. I thought it was an artistic choice to not have any <laughs> subtitles. But then like the he has like the last lines of the movie, and I'm like, what's, what's going on? What's he talking about? Am I supposed to know? Because for most of it, I was I kind of, the visual storytelling was so strong, I felt like I wasn't missing anything until the end, and I was like, what happened? I had to go read about it later. Um, but Okia... Okia is another one of those movies where I think for most of it, it seems like, oh, this is kind of like an E.T. kind of thing. It's kind of a fun adventure movie. But then that ending is so sad. I don't want to spoil it for you, Sean. I mean, I can imagine. It's a movie about everyone trying to eat an animal, right? I, I, I guess it's not too much of a spoiler if I say, like, kind of the message is, like, a part of it is you can't save all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, I feel like that's his, that's his environmental picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but also about you know, corruption of, of big business. Uh, one of my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal performances. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Tilda Swinton is great in that too. It's got a big, like a ton of Western actors in that one, right? Oh yeah. Um, I've mentioned two. I'm trying to, I can't remember off the top of my head who else is in it. Remember how the guy, Paul Dano. Oh yeah, that's right. Remember how the guy who played Herschel on the walking dead was in the host. Yeah, he's the guy who's like, let's dump all the formaldehyde into the Han River. It's <laughs> yeah. all his fault. It's all his fault. <laughs> that was so interesting, too, to see that movie and that that movie opens with an Amer- uh, in English. And yeah. then it has like some English parts later. Um, so he's always, it's always, I always thought it's kind of interesting that he includes a lot of, uh, not a lot, but like English-speaking parts and do a lot of his movies. I know mm-hmm. he speaks English very well, too. I was watching an interview with him on IMDb. He's fluent. Yeah, so. and I see a lot of these characters in Parasite also just casually include English in their Korean. I don't know if that has something to do with the culture, if maybe you are more upper class. I don't know. Yeah. I know in that same IMDb interview, Song Kang-ho was there, and he doesn't speak any English, so I don't know what his upbringing was like. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's just something one one person learned and one person didn't, or if there's more to that, but sort of interesting. Um, but what's so weird about a transition from Okia to Parasite, I figured seeing that the last two movies were Snowpiercer and Okia, that this was kind of the direction Bong Joon-ho was trending in. He was going to go kind of commercial adventure action movies. And then to see him do a movie like Parasite, it's kind of him going back to his roots, but then also kicking it up a notch in terms of message (laughs) and in terms of just extreme, I don't know. Yeah. Extreme. (laughs) Extremeness. Yeah, it's really cool. He goes back to Korea. No Western actors in this at all. It's totally in Korean. Um. And it has, a, I think, a lot of probably subtle Korean themes and, and ideas and props that we just didn't understand. I saw a thread on Reddit talking about someone uh, was asking, were there any jokes that a Westerner wouldn't have got from watching Parasite? And someone brought up, there's a recurring bit about how um, he had, at one point had a cake business. And there's someone else who said they had a cake business. There's this fad in, like, I think the 90s maybe where all these South Korean business owners were opening up these cake shops with a specific kind of cake. And they're all, like, failing and toppling over. So huh. 
little things mm-hmm. like that yeah so, so that would be like us being like oh i tried to i put all my money into launching an app or yeah or like, like having a dot-com website yeah in the late 90s or something so i thought that was kind of fun so let's talk about this. Oh, I also wanted to mention, uh, Okia competed for the Palm Door at Con, and uh, and then Parasite actually came out and and won the the Palm Door at Con. Uh, so it, it it included that little winning thing, that little title card thing. <laughs> that reminds me. I, I told you that thing about how Joker won the Golden yeah, Bear at the. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring it up because you, yeah. you said that. So Colin, do you know about this? Oh, you haven't seen Joker, so you wouldn't know. So Joker won the Golden Bear at was that the is it Berlin Film Festival is that what I said I think that's what it is I think that's what you said and and usually when a film wins that award they'll present the logo at the beginning and they mm-hmm. didn't because they're like fuck that shit <laughs> they didn't care <laughs> it's like the first American film to win it in like thirty years and they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't put it in there because they're too cool and like every movie that has ever won it up to this point yeah, had yeah. that card in it. it's like so, total bullshit try to see that Parasite respects. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, film. <laughs> um, so I imagine we'll go pretty into spoilers on Parasite. Fast. Yeah, I was gonna to. ask, like, what? It's hard not to. Are we, are we just doing all all spoilers? This is a podcast not for people who haven't seen it yet. <laughs> We've already spoiled a couple other movies already, so <laughs> and there wasn't no, even any warning. We're, we're just going for it. It was subtle, though. <laughs> Well, we did mention that there's eating children in Snowpiercer. Um, it's true. That's got to be out of the statute of limitations, right? It's five okay. years? Yeah, I think so. That, that's good yeah, that's... for movies, yeah. I guess if we want to not talk about spoilers, we can briefly just talk about what the movie's about. Okay. Which is a family of four. Uh, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter. Um who are dealing with a period of poverty and unemployment um, and are presented with an opportunity. Um, a friend of the son uh, asks him to take over as the English tutor for uh, the daughter of a wealthy family. And to do that, he has to sort of forge his, his identity. Uh, he has to pretend to be a university student uh, and act high class to get the job. Uh, but he does it, and from there, a scheme unfolds to slowly get the entire family employed by this wealthy family, and and then some shit goes down. Also, an important element to bring up when that friend first tells him about this position, he also gives the family this collectible stone or rock that, in their culture, represents like when when a family gets this stone, they'll come into contact with wealth so that to me is a really interesting part of this film because i tried to look up what that was mm-hmm. and as far as far as i can tell it's called a scholar's rock or a scholar's stone i think he may they may have said that in the movie yeah and um it sounds like this is a thing that uh that educated people they would go and search on riverbeds and mountainsides for um these certain shapes of stone that they would admire for their specific shape and then they would bring them to their temple or their home or whatever mm-hmm. and then have them as sort of a thing to admire and think about as like a microcosm of the beauty of nature and the world and the universe which doesn't seem like the purpose it serves in um in this movie where it's like directly like this is a 
this is oh, this will bring you wealth. It's like a, a sacred, uh, you know, like a lucky rabbit's foot or something. Mm-hmm. You know, um, instead it was just like more of like a fun collectible weird thing in real life. So I don't know if that's like a a joke for the Korean audience that they're like treating this, uh, you know. To me, it seems like more like it's like if someone gave you like a collectible china or something. It's like, oh, it's nice. I'll put it in a cabinet and it'll yeah. be cool to have. But instead, they're like, oh, this is this will help us uh, succeed and bring prosperity to our family. Um, or if it, it's like a deliberate like lampshading thing of Bong Joon Ho is, is you know th- this is a movie and, and whenever you have a, an object in a movie, it's a big deal. So I'll, I'll take this mundane thing and make it seem like it's a big deal just. So you have no idea what's going to happen and when it will come back. But you do have a feeling when it's introduced, it's going to have like a monkey paw effect where <laughs> it's going to, they, they think they're, they're hoping it'll, it'll lead to what they want, but it'll come with some sort of price. Yeah. And you know, knowing Bong, just knowing Bong Joon-ho and knowing that he's willing to go to those dark places, I saw that thing. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> this is gonna be bad. <laughs> but you're not, not even sh- you're not even sure. Like, should they get rid of it? Because there's like one part where I like they're thinking of like throwing it at somebody, yeah, and you're not like, the should they or, sh- or or is that a terrible idea? Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's such a weird little part of this movie. Um, there'll, there'll be whole essays about that one rock. <laughs> fucking scholar. Just you wait. So this is the part of the movie that's it's it's kind of fun. It's like hijinks. Because the son infiltrates himself into this family's life and then sees opportunities for all the other family members. They get this, mm-hmm. the sister to be the uh, art therapist for the child, which she kind of sneaks her way in by when she's meeting with the mother. Uh, what are they called? The Park Park family? The Park family. Yeah. Uh, the, art, the, the heroes, quote-unquote heroes, are the Kim family. The Kim family. And uh, the the wealthy family is the Park family. She convinces uh, Mrs. Park, based off of one of the child's paintings, that he might be like disturbed or like some sort of psychological problems because of like the corners of all his paintings. Yeah. <laughs> so this the the daughter was like my favorite character because I feel like she was kind of the most manipulative, and she's like you know I don't I don't come cheap. Like she was just taken full force like in that situation. <laughs> yeah, they not afraid that they talk about later in the movie. I guess we are in the spoilers now. Yeah. Uh, that that. Uh, like one of the gigs she had been doing to make money in the meantime had been like acting uh so she'd like be a, like a wedding guest yeah uh, mm-hmm. and stuff like that and, and i think the few times the dad even remarks like you could actually be like a professional scan or scam artist or or, <laughs> or commit fraud for a living uh like like he like he's really impressed and proud of her <laughs> for having that talent and the son scammed his way in but the daughter finds opportunities to scam the rest of her family in by doing dishonest things to other people who are already employed by the family. She gets yeah. the driver fired by putting her uh, her her panties in the backseat of the car, uh, which is a great conversation when Mr. Park finds that because he's like, why would they put it in the backseat if he's, if he's having sex in the car? It's like crossing the line. Why would you do that? It's a hilarious exchange. And so that leads to the father becoming the driver. And then their most elaborate scheme is to take out the family um, maid caretaker uh, by making it seem like she has tuberculosis. <laughs> and they, they do that by finding out she's allergic to peaches. And uh-huh. so they're constantly like rubbing, like getting peach shavings and like putting them on her. And she's like breaking out and hacking up stuff. And, and I love there's that scene where she's like, they, they, they 
encounter hacking up in the in the uh, kitchen, and she spits into the trash can, and he pours the hot sauce into the trash can to make yeah. it look like blood. And it's great because just the scene before they're eating pizza, and you see him putting the hot sauce on the pizza. It's I just I love it in movies when you see little pieces add up. Like you, you have an emphasis on a shot that you don't think is important, but then you see you, it used later, and you're like, oh my god, that's so brilliant how they set that up. I also really appreciate that scene, that very brief scene where they're in the pizza place, um, because. The, f- the family is making money, but not a ton. And so the way that the, that the movie is showing that they've slightly risen in social class is that the pizza place where the, before they were making pizza boxes for them, they're now able to actually just go there and eat. Yeah, they make pizza boxes so they can pay for their Wi-Fi. So they can pay, like, well, they're stealing the Wi-Fi. I don't know what they're paying for. Uh, so they've all infiltrated their way into the family. But, you know... You know that this is going to end poorly, and there's going to be a scene in the movie that I was telling Sean, there's going to be a hider-in-the-house moment (laughs) where they have to hide in the house when the family comes home. And that that has some pretty suspenseful moments and funny moments. I don't know how we want to go forward with plot from here on out. Well, I think there's a couple things I want to talk about this part of the movie, too. Um, For me, I think one of the most interesting aspects of this section of the film is there's never a part. Oh, yes, there's one part that the, the daughter says she Googled art therapy mm-hmm. and was just going off of what she Googled. Yeah. But with um, the mother, the father and the son, they're just really good at their jobs. There's, there's no, like, it doesn't seem like he's faking it when it comes. I mean, it seems like a little bit that he's faking it as an English tutor, but the dad can't fake being a good driver. The mom can't fake like being a good housekeeper for the most part. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and and we know that the thing that was keeping them from having access to those jobs is the fact that this wealthy family is only interested in sort of word of mouth recommendations. So uh, the, the the Mrs. Park says at one point like that's that's the best way of doing it is. Uh, knowing someone you trust and getting a recommendation of someone they trust. Yeah. They're good at those things, though. They have street smarts. One thing that made me think about till, till right now that I really enjoy is how the family has nothing. The, the, um, the Kim family has nothing. But they are skilled in some ways. Yet the other family seems totally oblivious and stupid, and they have everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was a nice contrast. If not a little maddening. I mean, they say, like, before you've even met Miss Kim, she's a little dim. And she is really easy to manipulate. It it, it was weird because, uh, and I'm sure we'll get more into this when we talk about the ending, it was hard for me to ever really decide who's really the bad guy here. Because, I mean, obviously the the Kims are in a horrible situation, and they're doing whatever they can to survive. But they take such extreme leaps to survive – does that make them worse or better than the other family? Is the other family like when you see these people? Do you think the Parks are bad people? No, I mean I think that was something I actually didn't really think about until after watching the movie, which I think I don't know shows how cleverly the movie sort of gets you on the side of the Kims, even though like yeah, they're just doing like bad faith manipulative stuff the whole movie but because we see that they're poor we're just inherently not rooting against these entitled rich people who don't really do anything wrong (laughs) like 
I mean, they they I mean, they have little regard for for poor people and their plight, but they're they're generally nice. Yeah. You know? So it's it's hard to say that they're bad people. I mean, honestly, they're they're better people, I guess, in general than the than the Kims, even though. Yeah, it's weird. You're you're not you're not really that empathetic for them for really the whole running time. And, and the movie talks about this too, right? There's this scene um, later on, which I guess is really the next scene in the plot from, from where we left in the recap, yeah. which is uh, the Parks go um, on a camping trip mm-hmm. for the son's birthday. And so the Kims, for the first time, have the run of the house. Um, and they, they get together and they celebrate and they get drunk and eat snacks. They accidentally eat dog food. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because that's just how fancy the dog, dog food is. Man, it's yeah. good. And and they have a, a pretty deep conversation about themselves and their lives. And there's the part where um, uh, Mrs. Kim says that the parks are are not wealthy because they're nice. They're nice because they're wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're uh, oblivious of what's actually going on. They're they're living in the bubble. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're totally out of touch, um, n- not just with um, what other people are actually dealing with, but with um, how, how their actions are perceived by people that aren't in their own class. And I think the movie makes an effort after that point to really drive home that, because that's when we start seeing Mr. Park talk a lot about how uh, Mr. Kim smells bad. And uh, and and uh, like how, radishes, and how he can't believe that Jessica took the uh, the the subway, right? Like, oh, we haven't taken the subway in years. Yeah. Um, which all all that comes up at the uh, at the end of the movie too, obviously. Also, they seem like dicks when they come home. Because okay, so this scene is great. That the scene you're describing, where they're all sitting around and, and, and talking about all this stuff. But of of course, you you get this feeling right from the get go that something's gonna go wrong. Yeah. They're all they're all too comfortable here. Oh, and yeah. the fam, so the uh, the parks come home early, like at night, coming back. And mm-hmm. right when they come back, they just seem so demanding. They want uh, the mom to make this dish she's never even heard of, like right off the bat. I want to talk about that too. Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. John. No, go ahead. Because <laughs> I, I was like, those noodles look good. I was hungry for noodles, and I remembered what they said. They said ramdon. Yeah. And, and they even showed, like, oh, they're pouring ramen and udon together to make this. Mm-hmm. So I was like, what's ramdon? How, could I just buy instant ramen, instant udon, and put it together and make that? Yeah. And the answer is no. The people that subtitled this movie made that up. Here's, oh, what's, no. here's what's going on. <laughs> Sorry for my Korean pronunciation. I don't know how to pronounce Korean words. Okay. There is a, there is a dish called japaguri. Which is a combination of two Korean instant noodles, japagetti and neoguri. Oh. So japaguri, right? From both of those. So it's the same as ramdon, right? They took ramen and udon. Yeah. And I guess they were just like Americans aren't going to know those two instant noodles. They're not going to know the combination of them. But they probably know instant ramen and instant udon are. So they just changed it on us. I think that's bullshit because the, I, I was dumb enough to not even make the connection. Ramdon, I like, I was like ramen. Like, I, I, I didn't even think about udon, even though they're big, thick noodles. Mm-hmm. They could have said what it actually was, and I'd be like, oh, some noodle thing. 
Um, but it, I, I thought it was interesting because uh, what they talk about is it's one of those things. It's like mac and cheese, right? It's like okay, one of those things yeah. like all, all kids like it, rich kids, poor kids. No home cooking. And so if you remember, the thing that Mrs. Park does is she says, make the Ramdan, but then also heat up the sirloin. So yeah. put the fancy cut of steak we have in. Oh, so she's that- like... This commoner food we're eating is actually not good enough for our our wealthy son. So we're great. gonna give him. That'd a... be like yeah, that'd be like if an American movie is like, um, can you have the macaroni and cheese and can you throw some lobster in there yeah, too? Yeah, some lobster, <laughs> the flamey on. Oh, that makes that makes that so much better. See, that's another one of those things where I feel like I'm missing out on a few things, not being super familiar with the culture. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad to hear about that. Yeah, and she makes this dish she doesn't even know about, and then the mom has the dad doesn't even want to try any like nobody really even cares yeah. it's not a big deal she's like asking about it or whatever the rest of the family is hiding all around the house i guess this is a great time to bring up too uh before the family comes home the original um caretaker woman returns mm-hmm. she says that she forgot something they feel bad for her. i think they kind of see like oh she's like us now she yeah. has she's really desperate she literally has like she's like bleeding from her lips because they like, did she... the peaches thing and so she's got these horrible bumps yeah, and she's stuff roughed up allergic reaction <laughs> and she goes down to their little like storage pantry area and we find and this is like the most south korean thing ever if i've seen because like, i've seen a handful of south korean movies there is a uh, a secret room leading down to a basement now they say that there's um there's like shelters in a lot of these old South Korean homes because of uh, fear of North Korean attacks. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. But the thing that makes it like a dark South Korean movie is the fact that there's someone living down there. Yep. The caretaker's husband, who uh, is basically evading his debtors and other problems in his life, has been living in this shelter down there and she's been bringing him food and she was let go. So he's down there starving and he's like totally lost his mind. He spends his day like operating the lights in the house. That's oh, it's so good. So he worships Mr. Park yes. because he's like, this is Mr. Park's house. I am living thanks to his kindness, even though he's not. He, he if anyone is the parasite, it's him probably. Yeah. Um, but he's he he does a thing where he when Mr. Park comes home, he he lights up three of the lights in the stairway one at a time as he ascends the steps, like God walking into heaven, mm-hmm. uh, and that's his way of uh, paying respect to mr park it's so nuts but it's one of those moments i'm like i should have seen something like this coming like how could you but i think of movies like old boy you know where there's people isolated and trapped away this is such a thing in, in south korean movies where you think you're watching a comedy or some other genre and then there's something dark like oh there's a man living in a shelter underneath a house yeah you're crazy little twist you were expecting there. a hider in the house you forgot that it would be a hider in the house and a hider under, under the, the house, house as well there's hiders <laughs> everywhere in this house <laughs> And that's where the movie just totally spirals out of control because they because they say like we didn't plan on this like yeah they don't have any idea how to how to take care of this and this um the caretaker lady like uh, she shoots a video of them because she sees like the rest of the family that all clumsy stumble down the stairs she gets a video of them and they kind of hold them hostage that's an interesting moment to me too because there's a shot of the legs right before they tumble down the stairs yeah and to me it almost looked like one of them kicked. one of the others down the stairs but that can't be right that was that's so stupid they must have just tripped right i would think so unless you're on to something (laughs) they want to be caught i don't think so it was an inside job (laughs) one of one of them wanted to be one of them felt the guilt the kims oh uh yeah so that 
that gets it pretty intense, especially when they find out that the family's going to be back in like eight minutes. I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. how that whole sequence plays out. Uh, with so, um, because they stumble down, yeah. the the housekeeper is able to get her phone out and get a video of them, and they even have the son saying like, "Dad, get off my foot." So the jig is totally up. They know um, if that video gets out, they're done for. Um, and so they take them back upstairs so that the, the, the hider under the house can enjoy um, some fresh air and, and not, well, it's, not, it's night, so not daylight, but, you know, not being underground. And they make the, the Kim family, like, sit in an embarrassing position and they make fun of them. Um, and then the Kim family, like, tries to take the phone back. Yeah, look for their and moment. That's, that's when they get the ding dong, we're coming home. <laughs> And they managed to get the hider in the house, hider under the house, back down there. Uh-huh. And I remember, like, I remember when they kicked the caretaker down the stairs. Oh, they rubbed peaches on her face again. Right. Again with the fucking peaches, man. I've never seen peaches weaponized so effectively <laughs> in a film. So disturbing when they're just rubbing them all over her face. She's oriented. They throw her down there. And just as everyone's clearing away, the father goes down to the basement. The kids hide under... Oh, no, the son hides up in like the the, the, the he has to the go up to room. the daughter's room because he he's reading her diary. Yeah, and the daughter hides under the like the coffee coffee table. Uh, but then, as they think everything's just about in place, the caretaker starts running up the stairs, and the the mom of the uh, of the King family kicks her down the stairs yeah. while she's been figuring out how to make rom don. <laughs> it's an insane sequence, uh, but it works for the time being, and the family gets home. And they're thinking, like, oh, hopefully there'll be a time. They're getting ready to go to bed. Everything's going to settle down. We're going to have our chance to get to get out of here. But the son wants to set up his teepee in the yard because he's really into Indians right now, Native Americans. I'm, I haven't even thought about what that must mean in terms of, like, metaphors or what that has to do with the rest of the movie. I'm sure there's something good there about how he's into Native Americans. Well, I mean, you can see it as, uh, you know, the these are the Native Americans, obviously, we, the United States committed a genocide against them. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, we add, on top of the injury, we add the insult of, of turning them into these like patronized, you know, the noble savage, all these stereotypes that exist. Mm-hmm. About, and they call them Indians, right? They don't call them Native yeah, Americans. Yeah, they call them Indians. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think those are all deliberate choices uh, to show a, another instance of another culture that is dismissing uh, people that they have uh, treated poorly. Yeah, but he sets his teepee up in the yard, and uh, the the father and the mother decide, oh, let's sit, let's sleep down here so we can keep an eye on him with our walkie talkies. So they basically have to wait there all night or most of the night. That was and that 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 sequence builds a very uh, cringy moment when the the um, the parks the the father and the mother start messing around sexually, and they have to just sit there under the table listening. And, and it's so funny what their their kinks are, right? Because uh, they're they he wants the Mr. Park wants Mrs. Park to play act like she's the the woman that had sex with her driver. Yeah, uh, because he's he's like, oh, it'd be so hot if you put those panties on. And she's like, oh, it's like you should buy me drugs because that's that's what they conclude is that the woman who left her panties must have been on meth because yeah, how right. else or, could she or have cocaine. Left her... <laughs> uh, and, and that's creepy. And we're starting to not like this family, but it did they did have that moment. I was like, they didn't want to keep an eye on their son, and he wants to have the walkie-talkie out. He, he's, so he's not just like hanging out with his son for show. He does. You must care about him to some extent. So, uh-huh. 
so I don't know. I just thought that was interesting how there's there's still those moments where you're like, well, they do care about each other, even if they're tr- also trying to present them as <laughs> the villains, yeah, sort of. So it's kind of interesting. The movie's not going to make it simple for you. They're not just going to be over the top. And, elitist. you know, eventually everyone falls asleep. And uh, I guess I don't, I don't need to go over every detail. Yeah. So I, I think that the thing was they, they came home for their camping trip early because it rained. And mm-hmm. so when the uh, when the Kims are able to sneak out, uh, they realize they're descending down to their home. And also, like, the, the running water is getting worse and worse. And by the time they get to their home they realized because they'd been at the park's home uh they weren't there to batten down the hatches for this huge storm yeah. which turned into a flood and their windows were open so um their their apartment their semi underground apartment has flooded and they've lost basically everything but the sun goes and gets that fucking rock that scholar's yeah. stone <laughs> is that flood a biblical thing or just a flood I don't think it really that's really the religion it's hinting at but i don't know i'm just i mean it felt biblical i don't know if that's the intent <laughs> i'm just wondering just i mean circulating here. but there's definitely i think that the aspect that i brought up of the, they they should have just been at their home and if they were there yeah um maybe this wouldn't have been so bad but on the other hand that was a bad flood people with houses higher up than them were also being evacuated so maybe not maybe it made no difference I really, for some reason, one of my favorite shots of the whole movie is uh, when the daughter of the Kim family is in the bathroom sitting on top of the toilet as it just gushes sewage, smoking a cigarette. Yeah. That's such a striking image to me. Their their toilet is like almost like on a shelf or something in their bathroom. Especially in that context of like a few hours ago, they have they were celebrating that like the Parks house was sort of their house now. Yeah, too. they're saying this is our this is our house. And then I, I guess we're kind of getting to the point where they're they have to continue to work for the Park family, but they're really it's really starting to strain on them. And there's that great sequence where they're all doing like the son is going to have a birthday, uh, and they're or some sort of party. I think it's a birthday. It's a birthday. Yeah, party. they're they're making up for the not being able to do the camping birthday okay, by yeah, having an impromptu party. birthday party. And they're all helping them with random chores, you know, like uh, shopping and whatnot. And there's like a kind of creepy score accompanying all, all of that. And it, it just makes the, the Park family seem so much more demanding and just annoying. And everything has to be perfect. Like every table has to be tilted a certain way in their backyard. Yeah, in the shape of a crane's wing. And you're really, they're really starting to get on your nerves at this point. Like who needs all of this? This is mm-hmm. way too much. Um, and of course, they're all invited to the party as well, aside from working the party. And, uh, right, which again, it, it, it's that complexity of, of not making it simple. You can't just hate them because, look, they they like these people enough. They're like, well, you're you're invited to our party as guests, yeah. or well, some of them. The dad, yeah, is well, not. like the son got, gets to come as a guest. Yeah, I love that scene. It's so sad, but it's it's so interesting to me where he's up in the daughter's room. He's looking out at everybody, and he's like, everybody just came out. It's so effortless, and they look so cool, and it's just so easy for them. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't fit in, and that was just a really like. I don't know. That moment really hit me. Yeah. For some reason. And they're all dealing with having lost literally everything. Yeah. And all these people get out to their fancy party. And these people just don't... They have so much. Uh, we're, we're slowly building to the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we've... quite we, the scene we, coming up. We've gone through, <laughs> like, the comedy stage of the movie. Then yeah. we And then sort of the heist 
and then into the thriller part of the movie. Right. And now we've you're almost into horror. Almost. Uh, for the ending because um, uh, this the son's heart is broken looking out at that party mm-hmm. and so he he realizes his family doesn't have a plan and there are two people down in that basement that can ruin everything for them um, so he takes the rock and he goes downstairs and we don't know ex- like exactly what he's planning to do but it, it seems pretty implied that he's trying to kill the hider under the house with that rock but when he gets down there, he finds out that uh, the housekeeper who had been kicked down the stairs has died. And the hydrant of the house has broken out of the bonds that his dad had tied him in. And our boy, he gets it real bad. Yeah, he, uh, like the hider under the house first kind of puts him in some sort of noose-like thing. But he like gets free of that and he tries to run up the stairs and he makes it to the top of the stairs. The, uh, the hider guy beats him in the head with the rock. And it seems like he's dead. There's a lot of blood. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy is all covered in blood because I wasn't sure. It must have happened before that when he was bashing his face against a button for the lights. Yeah, he was trying to communicate in Morse code that he needed help. Yeah. And the son was like, saw it out in his teepee too, which I thought yeah, was interesting. The, um, the park son. Yes. The Kim son. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so then this guy is just out, the hider's out in the party with blood all over his face. He picks up a big knife from the kitchen and goes out uh, into the party and uh, goes after each member of the Kim family. Uh, in a sequence that really uh, made me realize that knives are really dangerous. It, it, there's so many movies I see where people get stabbed and it's no thing. Mm-hmm. I've never seen knives feel so dangerous and effective in a movie than in this movie. Like He goes right up to... Well, I guess before that, they were planning on doing like a little sketch almost for the son's birthday. Everyone out in the party, um, Mr. Park and Mr. Kim are going to dress up like Indians. And uh, the uh, Kim daughter is going to come out with a cake. Uh, and they're going to like try to attack her jokingly. And then the son's going to save them. I thought that was a little, that was kind of an interesting segment. And how um, Mr. Kim. Is has no patience for this anymore. Yeah, and feels like this isn't my job. You're just do, manipulating me to do whatever you want. And 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 that's an interesting moment too, because he he says the same thing that he had said earlier about like, well, at least you love your wife, right? Which it really seems like it's a sincere attempt on uh, Mr. Kim's part to make to 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 break down that barrier and not just be employer employee yeah. and actually have some level of friendship with Mr. Yes. Park. But every time he's tried to do that, including this time, Mr. Park is like, well, I'm I'm paying you. He crossed the line. Yeah. There's a line. Um, and so I think that starts to, to break Mr. Kim's will, is that, like, oh, this guy is never going to consider me an equal. Uh, I will always be an employee to him, even though I'm play-acting I'm play acting with him at his son's birthday. Uh, <laughs> he still just sees me as uh, almost property. And there is something about that performance throughout even the earlier scenes in the movie where you kind of feel like something's brewing in him like maybe he's just always felt that he's never going to be a part of rich people society and like there's a tiny part of him that just wants to fuck up a rich person this is, this but, is gonna yeah this is gonna spoil my my big climax of our uh review but i think mm-hmm. the real parasite is that idea of that you could be rich one day right and yeah. it's it's totally infected and killed the spirit of of the dad and as we see in the movie it's still taking its hold uh on on the kim son which is so sad 
Mm-hmm. But we're getting ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back to the hider. <laughs> back <laughs> he gets, to the hider. He gets out. He's at the party. And uh, and the uh, the Kim daughter is, is coming out with the cake. And the hider guy comes right out and he stabs her just like right under her shoulder. All this blood everywhere. And then he starts stabbing people. He goes after... The, he fights with the mom a little bit. That's... Yeah. He calls he calls out the mom and the mom's like... Kind of like she goes for it. They fight. And they're tasseling. And somebody like sticks a shish kebab rod into the hiders, like the, his ribs. I'm, I'm trying to remember who did that. I think it's the mom. I think it is the mom. She gets the best of them. She was like... Something that I thought was interesting... Just because I just remembered it right now, it's 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 shown that she used to be like maybe kind of like an athlete or an Olympian. I wonder oh, really? how that ties into the rest of the story. I didn't pick up on that. There's two scenes. There's early on you see in their apartment. There's a picture of her doing whatever that thing is where you spin around with like a like a stone and like a sling kind of. I don't know. What oh, you call sure. That. And there's a scene also where they're hanging out in the backyard and you see her doing that. Now that you remind me of that, yeah. I totally remember when the house floods, one of the things the dad grabs is like a metal. Mm-hmm. He pulls like a metal off the wall that's been framed. So clearly mm-hmm. she's like tough, but I'm also trying, I, I'd love to know how that, there's so many things like that that I haven't even weighed into. There's yeah. so many other things. I'm sure that that applies to something else in the movie in a really <laughs> interesting way. Uh, how maybe she was at this higher level and then for whatever reason, because of her class, is now back to square one i don't know can never be rich or can mm-hmm. never be successful uh but she yeah she takes out that guy uh, and that guy's dying and basically dead uh and then probably the most surprising thing in the whole movie uh in the heat, heat of the moment uh, mr kim takes a knife and stabs mr park yeah well we should set that up a little bit more because we forgot to mention a few things that all come into play really it's, fast okay. in this it is a lot of stuff um so the 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 park son um the reason he needs art therapy is because he thinks he saw a ghost a few a couple birthdays ago, I think. Yeah. And that ghost was the hider under the house. Yes. He was he was sneaking out one night to um, to steal food, but the problem was the park son had also snuck out of bed to steal food. Eat that cake. Um, <laughs> and that shot, by the way, is so creepy. Those eyes, those piercing <laughs> eyes. I don't know why he was walking up the stairs with his eyes like all the way open. <laughs> I guess you know maybe it's like a just silent like, film movie villain. Yeah, it's, it's like Nosferatu coming up the stairs. Um, and so uh, when the hider under the house emerges and starts stabbing people, it's extra terrifying for the park son because he sees the ghost attacking people. He faints. He faints, <laughs> and so um, because he faints, um, and Mrs. Park had the experience of him having a seizure uh, the other time he saw the ghost. Uh, and she believes we have to get him to the hospital in 15 minutes or there will be irreversible damage. Yes. Um, so they pick up uh, the son and are like, Mr. Kim, we're leaving. This is while the hider in the house is literally in a knife fight <laughs> with the Kim mom. Yes. They're, they don't give a fuck about these people. They only care about their own son. And they expect Mr. Kim to feel the same way. Um. And he still gives them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Because he pulls the keys out of his pocket and he tries to throw them to Mr. Park. Mm-hmm. But the keys get deflected by the hider under the house. Yeah. And he falls on top of them. And I think that's when the mom stabs him with the shish kebab sword. Yeah. And so we have uh, the Kim daughter bleeding out. The Kim mother injured from being in a knife fight 
um, and the hider in the house bleeding out. And Mr. Park goes over and he pushes the hider in the house out of the way and grabs the keys out from under him. And he pinches his nose like, ooh, this guy smells so bad. Yes, and that's a good detail to include. And that's what triggers um, Mr. Kim. He's like, this guy doesn't give a fuck about any of these people. He doesn't, like, it's clear to him that, like, the violence doesn't matter. He's just uh, disappointed in his own discomfort of having to smell this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Mr. Mr. Kim stabs Mr. Park with that knife. It's bloody. It's pretty messed up. <laughs> it's pretty messed up because, because like on the service level, you know, like like I keep saying, this movie's not gonna make it simple for you. It's like that's 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 just a straight up murder that did not need to happen. Uh, you could even imagine them protecting their cover because anyone that could blow their cover has died. Yeah. Um. So it, it could have very well gone another way where they're like, that was a crazy thing that happened, but we're all okay and we're gonna keep kind of keep working for you. Uh. But instead, they make that choice of Mr. Park has to die. I think he did a great job of building up all his reasons and being in that moment. It just felt like the right response for him. Because he doesn't make plans. He doesn't make plans. That's, That's what right. this whole movie's about, and I love that. There's that that great sequence um, right after their house is flooded and they're all staying in a, in a school gymnasium um, for people that you know were in the flood. And the father says, the best plan is no plan. Yeah. Because every time you try to make a plan, it'll just fall apart. Which is so good because not only does it give his worldview, but it obviously also sets in motion his son thinking, well, if dad doesn't have a plan, I have to be the one who has a plan. And so it's also his fault um, for all this happening. It's complicated. It's not easy. Uh, so, yeah, and the, uh, the father seemingly runs off. Um, everyone else's fate is kind of left uh, ambiguous until I guess we we must go right to the hospital after that. I'm trying to remember. If I forget any... if they if we see the, like the newsreel thing first or if that's after that. Well, yeah, we, it doesn't matter. So the newsreel, yeah, the uh, no one knows where the father, the Kim the Kim father went. He's mm-hmm. seemingly disappeared, and they're trying to hunt him down for the murder. The son uh, did survive somehow. He had to have brain surgery. He had to have brain surgery, which made it so. He kept laughing at. Yeah, he's the Joker now. He's the Joker. He turned into the Joker. Son's Joker. (laughs) That's what I knew. This movie is the movie that Joker wanted to be. And the mom made it, and the daughter died. Daughter did. That was crazy. I can't believe they they killed her off. It made it such a jam. It's it's like we were talking about at the beginning. The unexpected death. You wouldn't. You wouldn't think another South Korean thing. I saw somebody on on the IMDb trivia section being like, "How it's it's the it's the same thing in the host. How both movies have a father who." fight a monster that represents socioeconomics <laughs> after their daughter has been killed. <laughs> daughter's killed. Wow. <laughs> I was like, that's, yeah, that's a good, a good connection to make. I didn't even think about that. And so then the, the, the son and the mom just kind of have to go on living their yeah, life back so in their crappy Another place. genre transition. We've become a drama now. Uh, where the... I, I feel like the big... Colin, maybe you can tell me if I'm crazy. I felt like the beginning and the ending of this movie reminded me of Shoplifters. Oh, yeah. I totally got Shoplifters vibes from this movie. Except I feel like Shoplifters is a movie that, like... I mean, they're both movies about long cons involving families. Uh Uh-huh. But Shoplifters, like, doesn't let you in on the con until, like, you know, the end of the movie. But... Uh, you know, Parasite like 
it's slowly you slowly get to watch the con build and build and build and then unravel um but yeah yeah no i definitely thought of shoplifters so yeah i, I guess we, we we can go to the part where the son um he decides that maybe he's gonna put together some sort of plan uh-huh. uh and he's, he's hoping that maybe someday he can be well, I guess he, he kind of... Does he, he comes up with the plan? Is his plan after the revelation he has about the house? Yeah, so he, he says that, like, well after the like the news had stopped reporting on his family and the detectives had stopped telling him that he decides to go up on a mountain and, and sort of look at the house. And that's when he sees what appears to be a Morse code message in that light, mm-hmm. you know, the one that the hider under the house controls. Yes. And uh, it is, uh, we discover that the father did not run away. Well, he ran back into the house, and he now is the hider under the house. In the most, like, unbelievably long Morse code message ever depicted on film. (laughs) Yeah, it's like like an essay, basically. Yeah, it's like five pages long. 10,000 characters. It would have taken years to decipher that. (laughs) And, like, how do you even know? It would have at least taken him probably, like, a week to even know when it starts. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have to learn it. Unless he's doing the exact same time every day, which he might be doing. But, like, how can that guy tell time? I don't know. But he he says he does it every night. Uh, Still. Also, in that letter, there's a nice touch where he explains that, like, oh... Because there were multiple murders in this house, I thought it would take a while to sell. But the real estate agents just found a foreign company, a uh, couple that didn't know what was going on, and Germans sold it to them bad. immediately. Germans, <laughs> uh, which is just like another like little dig at the callousness of this upper class of like, don't give a fuck, don't disclose it to people, just get foreigners in there. No one gives a shit. We're just making money out here. So after the son discovers this, that his father is living in this house. He has this um, this plan that's uh, shown. It almost as like, almost as like to trick the viewer that this is a scene maybe in the movie in the not mm-hmm. too distant future of him becoming wealthy and then moving into the home with his mother and then being reunited with his father. Uh, only to that to cut away from that to see them like thinking about that or writing about that. that that's going to be his yeah, plan. That's just the plan. Which, like I said, I think that's super devastating because that shows that. He's just stuck in the thinking of this system. Uh, he knows he doesn't fit in with those people, and instead of wanting to change that in a positive way, he just thinks, "Well, I got to make money, so I could fit in with those people." The vicious cycle continues. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, man, There's a lot to unpack. It's funny just talking at the movie. I feel like we touched on things like, "Oh, what does that mean? That probably means something, yeah. right?" I think the other thing about that the title parasite i mean it's such it's so interesting because it's singular and i don't even know if that must be a deliberate choice it's not parasites it's parasite um we're sure this is a proper translation to yeah. this isn't the subtitle people fuck it up well again. i'm i'm assuming because we know bong joon ho speaks english so i'm yes. sure he would have said something if it's like you know it's supposed to be uh plural yeah um so that makes me it makes me so curious about what that can mean i mean the other thing i was thinking is um, it's not ever poor people against rich people except in the moment that Mr. Kim stabs Mr. Park. Outside of that, it's it's poor people versus poor people for the scraps yeah. that rich people are willing to give them. 
and they even they even like they talk about it a little bit um, when they're like, we should just go down there and talk to the housekeeper and the hider under the house and work this out, uh, and that doesn't get to happen. But there's a, there, obviously you can imagine there's a way where they could all happily coexist and mooch off um, the excess that the parks have and and uh, and peacefully coexist. But because of the desperation of their situations and the poverty they experience, they end up being enemies. Yeah. I guess my take on the title, I'm not saying it's a right take or makes sense, was that both families were a parasite in some way to the other family. Mm. How one was in it for the family's wealth and the other was kind of in it for the other family's humanity in a way. Like I think about how like how the daughter of the... Um, of the Park family, how she instantly started, like, clung to that relationship. And it sounded like she did the same thing with the previous tutor. Like, right. it doesn't matter. You just keep bringing tutors in. That makes you feel alive to just keep clinging to the, the new the new tutors. Like, they need these people that they don't necessarily respect to feel like he, he regular people again. Right. So, the correct answer is everything's parasite. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think that's how a, par- a parasite works. But why not? At least... You can make those connections. It's not like Joker where like nothing like really means anything if you think about it. Fucking Joker. <laughs> this you can make you can make explanations for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Uh, I guess just kind of talking about how uh, layered this movie is is uh, is probably why it's so acclaimed. Because going into it, I was I was surprised that this movie was already regarded as like one of the greatest movies of the decade. And it's it's hard even I think right after watching a movie like that to be like to kind of get that full effect. But I think just even here sitting here talking about it really makes me appreciate it and think like there's a lot going into this movie. That's why people like it so I'm, much. I'm, yeah, I'm having the very same experience as you, John. Where I'm really like <laughs> I'm way more enthusiastic about this movie than I thought I was because I liked it a lot. But I, I wasn't like oh this is like one of the best movies I've ever seen or something. Like some <laughs> yeah. people may how do you believe? Uh, but yeah, like. Oh man, there's there's so much. I don't know how you even write something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it takes a lifetime, mm-hmm. or maybe it just takes picking up a very expensive trash can. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't think of a better ending than that. Um, unless you have some John's goofs to share with us. As far as I know, there's no no mistakes were made in this film. <laughs> there you go. I couldn't find any, and if there were, how would I know? It's flawless. Uh. Here's another translation thing. We can count this as a goof. Okay. In the movie, they say uh, the sun, uh, the the fake uh, university application, or not application, uh, resume, whatever. Resume, yes. uh, Is from, he says he went to Oxford, but in Korean, they say he went to Seoul National University. So they just changed it to Oxford for some reason. Because people, is that... Because we don't know what uh, soul is. <laughs> we don't know South Korean that it's important. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe they would like you wouldn't appreciate like how prestigious Seoul National University is. You wouldn't feel it the way you feel it with Oxford. Um, a letterbox. American yeah. audiences and English audiences get the same translation since they Ooh. chose an English school. I think uh, in this case they do because, as far as I know, this. Uh, translator has done all the Bong Joon-ho movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't write down his name. I'm sorry to... I, I want to say Darcy something. 
Uh, I mean, that's pretty good that you remember any part of his game. <laughs> I'm impressed. I mostly just wanted to figure out what those noodles were, and then I got mad at him. But yeah. now I forgive him. Uh, yeah, I gave it a four four stars of Letterboxd. I'm thinking I got to bump it up to four and a half now. So you gave it four and a half, Colin. I did give it four and a half. Even though I, I, I think I did have a similar experience listening to you guys talk about it, where I'm just like, yeah, there are just like so many little things that happen in this movie that all kind of connect. Uh, but you don't really think about all of them when you're watching it, because it's also such a like, you know, suspenseful thrill ride, or at least it is in that like middle to, uh, you know, three quarters mark mm-hmm. where you're just like shit what are they gonna do next oh fuck and like you're yeah you're not thinking of the details but like the movie goes you know to the to the effort of, of putting them in there where you can kind of dissect it later and be like oh yeah wow <laughs> there's a lot going on there uh but yeah no i that's it, that's one of those movies you always or one of those movie experiences you always want to go into and see in a theater with people where you're like where the fuck is this going next yeah. I was trying to think of what it reminded me of it reminds me a lot of other South Korean movies because they're willing to go they're willing to be comedies that also have murders in them <laughs> I guess it also kind of reminds me of the Coen brothers that's something they're kind yeah, of like that they, they do some murders they do and they do like very like complex um, metaphors like who knows what all the details in Barton Fink mean necessarily mm-hmm. Uh, but almost like one of it's like if they made one of their comedies, but then included even darker shit, like shit from like No Country for Old Men. Like <laughs> it's that's what Korean cinema, at least, has been, has been like my experience with. Is it's like these comedies that will take it in a direction that an American audience would think that's crossing the line, but it crosses the line. Oh yeah, <laughs> it'll kill kids. But it'll do whatever it has to do. They didn't kill a dog. They didn't. Oh, thank God, man. There's three adorable dogs in this movie. All they do is bark when everyone's fighting. Yeah. Oh, but there's that great scene where one eats the meat off of the shish kebab sword <laughs> oh, after the guy's it's stabbed head. into the guy. It's like, it's like chewing mm-hmm. it off. Even the dogs are upper class. They don't give a fuck about these rich <laughs> or these poor people. <laughs> See, we could keep going like this. Mm-hmm. We gotta stop. It does make me want to watch some of Bong Joon Ho's movies again, and maybe kind of get into some more South Korean movies. I think Park Chan-wook is probably the closest to Bong Joon-ho in mm. terms of totally similar South Korean filmmakers. He's a little, of course, um, not as funny. <laughs> yeah, He's all about the darkness, but his stuff's good too. But yeah, just, just, I don't know if Bong Joon-ho will ever make... I think The Host will always be my sentimental favorite, but I don't know if he'll ever make a movie this um, well-written ever again. I don't know. It, it definitely has... Um, set him up as one of the great like master filmmakers of his time i think the host also has the one thing that i worry about where the graphics for the host itself or hmm. i don't know if you call the monster the host whatever the monster is the han river monster uh the host is like actually multiple things yeah, Sean. I'm sure. <laughs> i mean yeah that's gonna happen with any movie yeah. that has creature effects but uh I don't know. I think that one's a little less of a downer, so that's why I'm still, still yeah. probably my favorite. But this is definitely uh, my second favorite, easily, for Bong Joon-ho. And I think it'll be most people's favorite. I love watching that family kill that fish monster. I'll give you that. It's a good time. Yeah. 
The one sister's so good at archery. It's fucking sweet. So you got archery in that movie? You got the Olympian in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> gotta have a... Like a very... like, And that's such a, like a prestigious sport, too, you know? She's not good at soccer or something. It's uh-huh. a Olympic sport. It's crazy to get all these threads between all these movies. Yeah. They're way more connected um, thematically than I thought about. It's fucking crazy, man. Well, I think that's it for us talking about Parasite, but we have one last little thing we gotta talk about, but it's actually a big deal. <laughs> it's my pick for the next episode. So I wanted to do two things with my next pick. I wanted to... Pick something not from the 2010s, because everything I've picked has been from the 2010s. And I wanted to pick something that was good, not bad. (laughs) I only fulfilled one of those. I'm so sorry, you guys. But this movie, uh, I don't think any of us have seen it. It ties in perfectly. It's easily available on streaming. So there's a movie coming out on uh, November 8th, which I think is when that episode uh, will drop. The the one that we're going to do, my pick. It's a movie called Midway. Oh shit! And so, do you guys you guys know who made Midway, right? Yes, no. Roland Emmerich. Yeah, so, I, was, I, was, I couldn't remember if it was Roland Emmerich or Michael Bay. <laughs> so <laughs> I noticed that um, Roland Emmerich's kind of first big blockbustery movie uh, is available on streaming, and it's called Universal Soldier. It's oh, also shit. a Terminator knockoff, which is oh, great because Terminator is coming out soon. It's a science fiction action movie with um, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren as super soldiers. It's uh, Roland Emmerich's first collaboration um, with Dean Devlin, who's a screenwriter who wrote Independence Day, basically all of his action blockbusters from the 90s and early 2000s. So, so it's kind of the birth writer. of this. <laughs> <laughs> the master of the pen. It's, and it's one of these movies that I'm sure will be... Will be bad, but all, I was looking at the IMDb reviews. Everyone's like, "This is the most awesomest movie ever made," <laughs> and I just think it'd be funny to see like where Roland Emmerich kind of started. Yeah, Mister mm-hmm. Epic Scale. How could you do that on your first movie? Well, this is, he did. It's funny. He did some movies before this, but they're. Um, I think they're. I think he's German, so they were like in German or, mm-hmm. or something else. So this is like his transition to American cinema at like the the height of like action blockbusters. It's an early '90s movie. His and I'm sure there's tons of great fun facts and uh, about this movie, and then also just how this movie uh, kind of led us into the next wave of blockbusters through the '90s and everything. So I'm more interested in the conversation than actually watching the movie. I'm sure it'll be a piece of shit. Should be funny though. Yeah, and it keeps on our Thanksgiving theme, and that we're all so grateful that Roland Emmerich exists. Well, I think that concludes our... Has uh... he made a good movie? Let's ask ourselves that. We're going to answer that in the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. Uh, and and if you can't wait either, maybe go over to mildlypleased.com where you can find uh, some of our written work. Uh, again, by the time you're hearing this, Shocktober will have wrapped up uh, literally yesterday. From when you're hearing this, the future from me, uh, I'll have written my horror bowl review, which is where I watch a really bad movie and I write about it. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But I did do an Independence Day sequel for one of those, so you can look that up. That was my most experimental review I've ever written. It was a mistake. 
Maybe don't look that one, huh? <laughs> um, also, if you're uh, still dealing with that impatience thing, maybe go and look up Molly Please on iTunes or whatever you listen to podcasts on. You can find our other podcasts. And, uh, and listen to us talk about other movies. Other picks, even, if you haven't listened to all these yet. Uh, and if you've done both those things, just, uh, just hold on. We'll speak to you in a week. Bye. Bye.